0: we're continuing our study through the book of James. And so if you have your Bible or if you have a phone, pull open James chapter 4. James chapter 4 verses 13 through 17. James 4:13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. and fails to do it for him it is sin this is the word of god pray with me lord we want you to speak through your word we've just prayed that as we sang asking god that you would speak lord that you would reveal your purposes to us that you would build your church till the earth is filled with your glory Would you do that, Lord, in part tonight as you speak through your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the final months of 2019, way back when in 2019, the elders of Redeemer Online, Pastor Al, Pastor Drew, Pastor John, and myself, spent a number of months wrestling and discussing the way in which Redeemer Online takes the Lord's Supper during our corporate worship service. We read articles. We read passages of scripture. We grappled with the logistics and how do we schedule volunteers. And as 2019 wrapped up, we were finally in a position to move forward. In January 2020, Pastor Al and I took a trip to the Philippines where we purchased communion trays that we shipped back to the UAE in our spare luggage. We were ready, ready to implement our plan. About a month ago, I was looking for something in the church office. Our church has moved offices three times since March 2020. We've moved offices three times, and so things can be a little bit discombobulated. So I was looking around trying to find a particular item. If you guys remember who've been here since the convention center, we have those tubs that we would carry everything in. And so I opened one of those tubs, looked in, not the item, put the lid on, set it aside. Open another tub, look in, no item, put the lid on, set it aside. Open a third tub. Look in. There's the item. Wham! There's also a smell coming out of the tub. In front of me was a piece of very moldy, very fermented Arabic bread from the last time that our church gathered at the convention center in March 6, 2020. It had been sitting there for well over a year baking fermenting, reaching that perfectly pungent point where I almost threw up. That was not what the elders had in mind at the end of 2019. Months of discussion and planning, and in front of me, a bag of moldy bread. We did not know what the future would bring. James 4, 13 through 17, is all about plans. James is continuing. What he's doing here is he's trying to show what does practical living look like? What does wise living look like in light of God's reality, in light of the bigness and the sovereignty and the reality of God? How do we live wisely, bringing God's being to bear upon every aspect of our lives? He wants us to have God's reality be the biggest part of our planning, and to do so he describes two types of planning. The first he describes is proud planning. The second he describes is proper planning. We'll look at those one at a time before wrapping up with some practical points of application. There's going to be a lot of P's in this sermon. Uh, I got carried away with the alliteration. So, first, proud planning. James wants to show what we shouldn't do before he shows what we should do. Look at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Note, James is addressing people who say this. As we've seen over and over and over again in the book of James, our words mean something, they carry revealing things about who we are and what we believe. And these words reveal about these people that they are proud. These are arrogant words of boasting, as we'll see later on. Now, there's nothing wrong with going into such and such a city and trading and making profit. The Bible is not opposed to businesses that are profitable. The Bible is not opposed to people making money. That's not the problem. The problem is these people are proud. But why is this? I mean, how are these words proud? We, we say this sort of stuff all the time. I'll see you on Tuesday. Right? I have an opening in my schedule for Wednesday afternoon. Right, we talk this way. How, how are these words proud? We see the answer in the next verse. Look at verse 14. You say this, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, And then vanishes. Do you see the problem now? These folks are speaking as if they have the power to bring about their plans, as if they were in control of their own destiny. They have a surefire plan. Next year, we're gonna go into this city and we're gonna make a profit. It reveals that they believe they're ultimately in control of their lives. And through these words, they elevate themselves to the position of sovereignty. Do you know what a sovereign is? This is a word that we talk about quite a bit with the Bible. A sovereign is someone who has supreme authority, who has supreme rulership. In the UAE, the sovereign is Sheikh Khalifa. Sovereignty is what the sovereign practices. Sheikh Khalifa, as he rules over our land, exercises his sovereignty. It's the actual control, the actual practice of authority. The people that James is addressing who say this are acting as if they have sovereignty over their own lives. They're acting as if their wills, their decisions are ultimate, as if they can bring it to pass by their own desires. In doing so, they're believing they control their own futures. And this makes them proud because they don't. When you elevate yourself to a position that you don't deserve, you're practicing pride. You're lying. You're saying that you have control, when in reality, you don't have control. You are not in control of your life. James says you don't have the necessary power, you don't have the necessary ability, You don't have the necessary knowledge to bring about your plans to pass. You can plan out the next year of your life to the minute, and you have zero decisive power to bring it to pass. And acting otherwise is an act of pride. In Luke 12, James tells a parable to illustrate the same thing. Luke 12, verse 16 Jesus told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he, the rich man, thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, aha, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. The things that you have prepared, whose will they be? This rich man gets an abundance of crops and he looks around and he says, My barns aren't big enough to enjoy this to the fullest. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tear down the barns that I have and I'm going to build bigger barns to enjoy more stuff. Now, Jesus' parable is especially getting at the love of this world, those who love the possessions of life but are not rich towards God. But it comes to bear on what James is talking about too. This man viewed his abundance of earthly possessions as a success And he made a plan to enjoy them. He was going to store up his grain for the future. He was going to relax. The world would call this man wise. He's planning out his future. He's planning out his prosperity. In our context today, he would be investing in a retirement account. Or he would be building a home back in his home country. This man is setting himself up for the future. He is Living the UAE dream. And yet, there's a problem with his planning. And his planning is he failed to take God into consideration. In his love for possessions, he didn't factor in what God would want him to do with those possessions. He acted as if he were sovereign over his own life, but it is utterly false because of that, he's not wise. He's a fool. You see, God is sovereign. We are not. God is all-knowing. We are not. God is all-powerful. We are not. God is everlasting. We are mist that vanishes here today, gone tomorrow. And when we fail to take this into account, when we say to ourselves, we control our own destiny, we're not just being foolish. We are being wicked. We are being evil. We are saying, God's not in control of my life. I'm in control of my life. And that is rebellion against the one who is the sovereign. Those who rebel against Sheikh Khalifa are punished for it. And he's just an earthly sovereign. When we act as if we are the king of our own lives, we rebel against the heavenly sovereign. In church, how often do we make decisions thinking as if we control our future? Thinking as if our knowledge of the future is ultimately what counts. We tell ourselves, you know what, I'm going to spend more time with my kids after the next contract. I know if I can just get through this, I know I'll have more time to spend with my kids. Or we tell ourselves, you know what? I'll be able to give generously when I get a bump in salary that I'm expecting. I can't right now, but I know that when I have more money, then I'll be able to give generously. Or how often do we make decisions as if we can control the outcomes? If I parent my kids in this way, if I do all of the right steps, they're gonna turn out to be worldly successes. Or if I go to the right university, and get the right training, then I'll be able to get a degree and make my parents proud. We, we treat the future like it's a transaction that we can control. And we're the best bargainer in the souk. We go in and we get our way no matter what. But we forget that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. When Laura and I were first married 10 years ago, we graduated from university, got married. The next month, we moved up to a different state, about 10 hours away from family, jobless. Now, Laura had gotten a degree in nursing. And if there's one thing that people tell you about a nursing degree, some of you can probably repeat this, is you'll get a job anywhere with a nursing degree. It's a great degree to have because you can get a job anywhere. So we go up and we had plans for our future, I'd gotten into the seminary of my dreams. I was going to soak up theology for four years. I was going to read. I was going to enjoy observation and ministry. I was going to get good grades, and I would do it all on my wife's salary. I would have my dream job of stay-at-home seminary husband. That was the goal. One month went by. No callbacks on Laura's applications. Next month went by, no callbacks. By the third month, we're there and the school year's about to start and we're thinking, uh, we're running out of money. So we both get jobs. I start working at a bank. Laura starts working at a coffee shop. Four months go by, five months go by, six months go by, no callbacks. And now all this time, we're looking in I'm going through my first semester of seminary, which I thought was going to be a dream. I had a vision for what it was going to be like, and it is crumbling in front of me. I remember nights sitting on our couch, just crying, trying to process, is this what we're supposed to do with our lives? We thought it would be this way, and it's not this way. Why is it so hard, God? Why is this not going the way that we planned it? When we were brought to the lowest point that we had been, in God's grace, Laura got a job. But in our desperation, what we realized is that we were keenly aware that we were not in control of our destiny, that we were not able to plan our way out of anything that came our way. And that job that Laura got, it wasn't a dream job. It provided for our living expenses for a time. It allowed for us to start a family. But it was hard work. It wasn't fun. It wasn't enjoyable. It was filled with a lot of difficulties. So it wasn't a complete worldly success story. But through it all, it was a success. And it was a success because we realized that God is sovereign and we are not. We learned to walk by faith saying, we're not in control of our lives, and that's a good thing, God. And through that experience, I can tell you, we've had to make a lot of big decisions over the course of our marriage. Through that experience, we learned over and over and over again what it looks like to trust God and to see him provide. The problem you see is not with our planning. James is going to talk about proper planning here in a minute. The problem is not with our planning, the problem is with our pride when we assume that we can just will things to be, we're taking the place of God, exercising authority over our own lives. And we learn how deeply we worship that idol of self, that idol of control, when things don't go according to our plans, when things all of a sudden go the way we didn't expect them to and we're paralyzed with anxiety, or we scream, in anger, because it's not going the way we want. James attacks proud planning first in order to show us what proper planning is. James wants us to plan in a way that honors the Lord and to glorify God, showing how dependent we actually are. And that's what we're going to look at. Verse 14, let's look at the second half again here. Proper planning. What is your life, James says? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Proper planning is the opposite of proud planning. Proper planning is humble, where proud planning is arrogant. Proper planning is righteous, where proud planning is evil. Here, James gives three aspects of proper planning that honors the Lord. They're the flip side of proud planning. So first, proper planning recognizes the nature of life proper planning recognizes the true nature of life. That's verse 14. Life is a mist. If you think you're powerful to bring your will to pass, you're not planning properly. You're failing to take into consideration who you are. We've spent a good deal of the time on this already, so we'll move on to the second aspect. Second, proper planning recognizes the reality of God's sovereignty. Proper planning recognizes that God is sovereign. God and His sovereignty is what matters in our future. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, no, this is not fatalism, that's not what God's sovereignty is. Fatalism is the belief that what will happen will happen and there's nothing we can do about it. Fatalism is the belief that our actions, they don't actually matter in bringing about anything. But that's not what the Bible teaches when it comes to God's sovereignty. God is completely and utterly sovereign. There is no one higher and His will is ultimate. The Bible is crystal clear on that. For example, God is sovereign over life and over death. See now, I and he, there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none who can deliver me out of my hand. God is sovereign over life and death. God appoints kings and removes kings. The reason why Sheikh Khalifa is on the throne is that God put him there. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. God sends disaster and God sends prosperity. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? You look around, you see calamity. God's sovereign over that. The Bible says God's sovereignty is ultimate and His purpose will stand. His purpose from long ago will stand. Isaiah 46, I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose God is completely and utterly sovereign over all things a Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper said there is no space in this universe where God doesn't say mine but this isn't fatalism it's not fatalism because our actions really do matter to God in the way in which God exercises his sovereignty. Our wills matter. Our prayers matter. Jesus said, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Why is God giving justice? Because the elect are crying to God in prayer. Those prayers matter. Our fighting sin matters. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. God will not put your sin to death apart from you putting your sin to death. You are commanded to fight your sin. Our sharing the gospel matters. Therefore, Paul writes, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, what's God doing? He's making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, sovereign over salvation, making his appeal through us. And our planning matters. Proverbs 6, go to the ant, o sluggard. It's a good word, sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Look at the ant. The ant makes a plan. The ant, without anyone telling them what to do, acts in a decisive way. God's sovereignty, true sovereignty, doesn't lead to fatalism. It leads to action. But this is action that is a certain type of action an action that recognizes that God's will is decisive. Ours is not. Our wills matter, but they are not ultimate. Our wills say, if the Lord wills, we will do this. And this is how proper planning, humble planning, actually leads to confidence. What is God's purpose for your life? What does God plan for you. If you're in Christ Jesus, then you know his purpose for you. God wants you to be happy forever in him, being made to look like his son. You pray, what is God's will for my life? That. Look like Jesus and be happy forever. In fact, everything that happens in this life All the hardship, all the good things, joblessness or success, sickness or health, comfort or suffering, all of that exists for the eternal good of those who are in Christ Jesus. One of the greatest promises in all the scripture is in Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for your good if you are in Christ Jesus. If you belong in Christ, if you have turned away from your sin, recognized you are not sovereign over your life, turned to God in repentance and faith and believed in the name of Jesus, then everything in your life works for your eternal good. That's God's purpose, and God's purpose will stand. No matter what, you will be glorified like Jesus. So Paul goes in Romans 8: those whom he justified, he also glorified. Everything that comes your way in this life comes from the hand of a Father who seeks your good. I love the way the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism is an old uh, series of questions and answers written hundreds of years ago. I love the way it talks about God's providence, God's sovereignty. It says this, God's providence is his almighty, ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, Food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. There's something in your life this next week. God is being a father to you if you are in Christ Jesus. That is not coming into your life to destroy you you are in Christ that is coming into your life from the hand of a father who loves you and is for you and wants you to be eternally happy in him james points out that we don't know what tomorrow brings in order to humble us i think james is echoing jesus's words in the sermon on the mount where jesus says the same thing you don't know what tomorrow brings But Jesus' point there is not merely to humble us. Jesus' point is to comfort us. You don't know what tomorrow brings, but your Father does. And you have a good Father who's in heaven, who will not give you a stone when you ask for bread and will not give you a snake when you ask for fish. If you are here and you're not a Christian, And this means that you don't know God in this way. And you can't claim these promises. If you are not in His Son, God is not your Father. But the good news is that you can be. Not one of us deserves to be children of God. In fact, we become that way by recognizing that we don't deserve it. That it's only by the blood of Christ shed for us that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. By turning away from your sin and turning to God in humble faith, these promises for God's good purpose for you can be yours. Proper planning recognizes and rests in God's sovereignty. Third and much shorter, proper planning recognizes that it is sinful to fail to trust the Lord. It's sinful. That's what James is saying in verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, this is sin. The right thing to do, according to James, is acknowledge God's sovereignty over your life. Trust the Lord with your future. Say if the Lord wills rather than controlling your own destiny. And this should convict us because if we act as if we're king of our lives, we're not being merely foolish. We're being sinful. And if we plan without taking God into account, when we know that we're supposed to, it is sin for us. Proper planning recognizes the true nature of life. It recognizes God's sovereignty, and it recognizes the sin that it is to fail to trust God. I want to wrap up today by answering the question of how how do we plan properly how do we actually do this because every single one of us is going to have to make decisions in life how should we approach this there's six steps i'm looking at the clock and i'm going to move through them quickly the first is purify your desires before you plan before you sit down with your pencil and paper Purify your desires. James makes it very clear earlier in this chapter that we can ask God for things with the wrong desires to spend it on our selfish passions. We can plan things that are all about us and dishonoring to God. So before we move forward an ounce or a gram or a milliliter, we should purify our desires. Second, put to death the desire for control in your life. This is a sub-point of the first one. Put to death the desire of control over your life. Before you plan, ask yourself, how would I respond if this didn't happen? And if the answer is you would be devastated, then it means you might be worshiping your plan. Die to that actively fight for faith. Say, I don't have control, God, and I'm acknowledging that before you. This leads to the next thing. Third, pray. Prayer will reveal whether you are actually putting the desire for control to death or not. Our prayers demonstrate how much we trust in ourselves or not. The prayerless person is the person who says, I'm going to that city. The prayerful person is the one who says, if the Lord wills, I'm going to that city. When we plan, we should ask God for guidance, ask God for help, ask God for discernment and for wisdom and for the power to accomplish things. We acknowledge our lack of control by going to God in prayer. Fourth, pursue wise counselors. Pursue wise counselors counselors. One of the ways that God answers prayers for wisdom is by putting people in our life who can help us be wise. We should ask them. Proverbs 15 says, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Fifth, plan. (laughs) Plan. At some point, you need to act. So put something in place. How are you going to send your kids to college? Make a plan. How are you going to get that job? Make a plan. How are you going to save enough to be able to return to your home country? Make a plan. How are you going to discern whether you should go to this city or to that city? Make a plan. At some point, we act in faith, but acting nonetheless. And then finally, preach the truth to yourself both as you plan and after you plan. Remind yourself of things that are eternal when you're tempted to think about only what's right in front of you. Remind yourself that if your plans fail, you're not a failure, not in God's eyes. You are a beloved child of God. If your plans fail, that doesn't mean that you're a failure. Remind yourself that if your plans succeed, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Just because your plans succeed doesn't mean you're great. It means God has been gracious. Remind yourself of eternal things and remind yourself ultimately of the things that will last forever as we go about our lives. The kingdom of God, the glory of Christ, and have the goal and the outcome of your plans be serving his glory and the advance of the gospel among the nations. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. Not one of us saw 2020 coming. Not one of us saw what 2021 has brought. I remember people on New Year's Eve looking at the turn of the year thinking we did it we made it through here we are it's almost august we do not know what the future will hold but our father in heaven does and his purpose is to make you eternally happy in christ this year trust him for it lord we do acknowledge our dependence upon you Lord, we turn to you and we ask that you would help us. We cannot do this on our own, Lord, and we don't presume to be able to. So, Lord, help us to plan humbly to live righteously before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.